Margaret, for that moving meditation. And I think we can all feel our own heart expanding as we feel your, your heart. Um, you know, in some ways, like the measure of a, a healthy society is how it treats the very old and the very young. And um, our society is not all that healthy, really. So, uh, in fact, I think there's a bridge between the terrain that you were trying to describe and the kind of wild, radiant innocence of, of personhood that a, ch a child, any child, has and has access to. And also, um, that same wild radiance goes underground. You know, that's part of Mate's book. It's a great book, by the way, The Myth of Normal. There are a few books I've been reading about, about trauma uh, more generally, and that, that's one of them. So um, there's a bridge between what, what you were trying to describe um, and that opening song, by the way, and the person I want to look at today, which is Abraham Heschel or Abraham Joshua Heschel. And I'm, I'll start actually with a quote that I was going to use later, but you'll, you'll hear the connection. It's, so look at your bulletin thingy. And quotation number two here, I want to read, begin with a reading here. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Well, I thought it was to make money. I thought it was to be famous, you know. I thought it was to be in charge. I thought it was to make a difference. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Kind of like the way a child in his or her radical amazement takes things in, takes the world in. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. This quotation, especially the end here, to be spiritual is to be amazed, opened something inside me when I first read it. Who knows? Um, probably 18 years ago is my guess. And it, it, cha it challenged my own definition of being spiritual, or really started a kind of question like, what are, what are we even talking about when we say something like spiritual? And I just, I love the simplicity of what Heschel's describing here. To be spiritual is to be amazed. And you can ask yourself, do I live like that? <laughs> do you have access to that kind of amazement? Or has it gone underground? It's there, at least in my view, as it's there in everyone and in every child. But it tends to be sort of maligned and ignored and pushed down and um, given certain uh, forms of amazement that make us money. <laughs> like, I'm kind of amazed that there's such thing as an electric car. But what I call that wonder radical amazement, or is it, is it a substitute? If I have such and such a 
physical, material object, I live in wonder. I think he's talking about something much deeper. So, um, yeah, okay, well, I want to talk about Heschel this morning. How many have ever heard of, a- let me ask it the other way. How many have never heard of Abraham Joshua Heschel? Great, good. Be prepared to have your life radically changed. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a hard series, actually. I was very excited about it, the series being Saints, Mystics, and Misfits. Um, and really, the more I wrestle with it, the more I wonder, is that the same thing, a saint, a mystic, and a misfit? And I started, I, I first made a giant list, and some of you, you know, contributed to it. What about so-and-so, and what about so-and-so? And I thought, yes, 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 yes. But the more I've sat with the, the people and um, the sort of mystics and misfits, the more I've sat with them and wondered about how to talk about them, the more I've realized I need to, to stick with people that have influenced me. <laughs> It's a better way of talking about um, saints, mystics, and misfits. Obviously, I'm not going to give you the giant river of, of wisdom, you know, just things that have bumped into my life here or there, and, and Heschel is one of them. To be honest, when I first started reading Abraham Joshua Heschel, I barely even knew that Judaism was a religion. I mean, if you would have asked me, I would have said, yeah, I guess so, but I never, really, never met any Jews that I was aware of. I'd never read any Jewish material um, other than the Bible. Um, I was, there, was some, there was a gap between you know, my knowledge of um, Judaism as a living, breathing uh, religion. Uh, it's, a little, it's, it's complex because it's also an ethnicity, um, being Jewish, obviously is. But anyway, he was um, like a bridge between that world and, and my own, at least initially, when I first encountered encountered his books. Abraham Heschel lived, was born in 1907 and died in 1972. So he's, again, a contemporary person, really. And, and I've kind of been working backwards, if, if you notice. I started with Richard Rohr and then Ken Wilbur and now Abraham Heschel, just backwards in my own way of looking at things and also sequentially here. Um, yeah, and a Christian Franciscan and a, I don't know what Wilbur is, uh, a wild human being. Um, I wouldn't call him religious necessarily. And then Heschel, who's very clearly inside the Jewish tradition. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think I first started reading him after, after I first visited Israel, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And, and another interesting sort of window opened that I'd never really thought about before. So Heschel, one of the things he would sort of self-identify as is a philosopher of religion. And I, I didn't really know there was such a thing. I thought religion was a series of debates about who's right, you know. And then really that's how I was treating Christianity. Like, is this claim right? Is this claim not right? Did Jesus literally rise from the dead? Did he not? You know, this kind of thing. Which is, those are fine questions, but to back way up and say, what is religion? I had never really done. What does religion mean? What does it do? What does it stand for? How does it operate? in the lives of individuals and in a community, kind of philosophy of religion stuff, I, I had never really, you know, cracked that door, I suppose. And, um, and so with Heschel, I started going deep, and he really captured my imagination. Um, <laughs> in fact, he so captured my imagination when I was living in Israel, I asked a friend of mine who was a painter to paint me an icon of Heschel. I thought that would be interesting. 
but I didn't really have enough money. I was a graduate student, and he's like, I work on commission, so. Or uh, is that what you call it, commission a painting? I was like, it's an IOU, so it never materialized. But that's how, like, he was beginning to sort of operate in my own sort of psyche as a, as a kind of rabbi. He is a rabbi, um, kind of a rabbi that crossed over into, into my world kind of surprisingly. Um, I'm not going to give you like a reading list, but I'll mention two things that I think are probably important. One is called Spiritual Audacity and Moral Grandeur. That's a, that's a title. Spiritual Audacity and Moral Grandeur. It's a collection of essays, really, and interviews. There's, a, there's an interview with, with Heschel and, and a, a, a Catholic priest at Notre Dame at the very end that is like, phew, it'll blow your mind. It's so good. Um, and the other is, is um, God in Search of Man. And when I say man, he's you know, sort of writing in the Old, older style, he means humanity, God in search of humanity, which right away gives you a sense of um, a reversal of orientation, because most people would say religion is the search for God, and he's saying uh, fundamentally it's the other way around. God, the divine, the mystery, is seeking human beings, is in search for the truly human. So <clears throat> gives you a bit of his orientation. And maybe an image, and then what I want to do, I sort of broke down. He has like, you know, dozens and dozens of books, so it's going to be impossible for me to sort of summarize. But I want to kind of wade into three territories. I want to wade into philosophy of religion stuff just briefly, or maybe critique of religion. And then I want to talk about justice, and then I want to talk about um, wonder or amazement or awe. That's kind of, I'm just going to read you some things and kind of riff on them a bit. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to give you an image. There's a very famous picture that you've probably seen but not noticed who else is in the picture. And that is, there's a very famous picture of Martin Luther King Jr. marching, I think in Alabama. And there's a, you know, a line of people. And he's coming toward the camera and the photograph's in black and white. And not too far from Martin Luther King is a white guy with a funny-looking beard. That's Abraham Joshua Heschel. And at the time, um, let's just say, oh, I'm being polite, but the larger religious world of America was not supporting Martin Luther King Jr. That's not totally true, because there were many brave men and women, um, black and other ethnicities, um, who were marching as well, but it was a minority. You know, Jesus has this famous line. He says, um, don't say to yourself, if we would have lived in the time of the prophets, we would have not shed their blood. <laughs> it's a way of saying, just, you know, if you were alive back then, don't think you would have been standing there in, in line. Now, some of you, you know, maybe did participate in those things. But I'm saying it's easy, like, for someone like me to say, hey, that's, that would have been me. And Actually, Heschel's presence was a kind of glaring um, confrontation that the biblical tradition in, at, at large was not showing up. Have I made sense? He was pointing out a kind of conflict, and I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. Okay.
Here are some questions that I want us to carry into some of these quotations. What is the relationship between religion and justice? Or between religion and freedom? Am I really willing to risk anything for what I believe or don't believe? Am I willing to risk anything? Um, I don't think um, sending a tweet is much of a risk, just in my opinion. Um, how are we to engage the world? And here, Rabbi, um, uh, Heschel is sort of like a rabbi for the larger world. Um, he, he writes as a Jew, but I think he's trying to speak in a more universal language. Okay. I'm going to read some quotes. So let's talk about religion. Here's, here's, a, here's a line. This is the very opening paragraph of God in Search of Man, God in Search of Humanity. It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. You know, blame the atheists kind of thing. Blame the secular world. Look how they've corrupted and corroded everything. And let's build a wall. I'm, I'm, not re <laughs> I'm just riffing here. He goes on. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant. Oppressive and insepid. Now, do you feel that as a rabbi who goes to the synagogue and listens to the Torah and participates in the great conversation within Judaism, do you hear that he's the one saying these things? I had never really heard in the same way a critique like that from within, not from without. It's easy to step on the outside and say, look at those religious people and what they're doing. He was saying from the inside, we're the ones to blame because we've become oppressive and irrelevant. So it gives you like a, a sense for where to look for the problem. And one of the reasons why I wanted to include him in Saints, Mystics, and Misfits is that I think we have some problems in the United States of America when it comes to religion and politics. We have, it's a mess. And one of the things that is temp tempting is to think, well, if we can just force religion into the background, go away, we'll all sort of rationally work our way through these issues, and the way forward is for religion to go away and for some sort of secular um, humanist philosophy to take its place. Now, you might still think that, but ask yourself, is that really going to happen? <laughs> And if, if you think it's not really, or if it's not clear that it's happening, which I would say it's not clear that that's happening, then what possibilities might be available to us for religion more broadly, and I mean religions here, to grow up, to change, to um, include more, to soften, to grow up into the possibilities of compassion and understanding, 
then you need critique from within, not from without. And that's what Heschel is saying. He says, essentially, blame me. <laughs> blame us. We're irrelevant. And why is that the case? That, well, that's the rest of the book. That's the opening paragraph. <laughs> he goes on to say what exactly the problems are. I'm going to read you another um, section here. This is from the same book here, and this one, um, let me get my notes straight here. Okay, here's another way of putting it. When faith is completely replaced by creed, I just, I want to pause here. Like, what is faith? Well, I don't know. We could have a whole conversation about that. Join us for talkback. You can tell me what you think faith is. But let's just say, at the very least, it is um, operating in the world without concrete certainties. That's maybe a definition. Like, I'm pretty sure this is the case, but it's not like a concrete certainty. It's operating with a certain posture. But he says, okay, when faith is completely replaced by creed, I know it's this way. The Bible says it, damn it, and that's it. You know, that's creed. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, make America great again, or some version thereof. He doesn't say that. Make America great. That would have been amazing. Then he really would be a prophet, you know, okay? <laughs> when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. And that's pretty much the state of affairs in mainstream religious culture. I'm not just picking on Christians, I just mean mainstream religious culture. Let's just stick to our creeds, our certainties, um, our heirlooms, the past, the way it was, and we'll only trust our authorities, whether it's some guy who just recently graduated from seminary or the Pope, whatever, we'll only trust our authorities. It's very hard to get close to the fountain of compassion. And he says it becomes meaningless. Do you feel how he's a critic, but from within? And you might start to wonder, where did he get the guts to say all this stuff? And he says, from the Bible itself. One of Heschel's major contributions as a scholar, because he was also a religious scholar, was a study of the prophets. He said, I learned it from the prophets of my own tradition. And here I want to just kind of set things up, because I want to transition from sort of critique of religion into the, the uh, prophetic consciousness for a moment. So the Torah itself has three sections. The, the, old, the, the Hebrew Bible has three sections. Some of these words you probably heard before. The Torah, that's the first five books. Sometimes people use that word more broadly, but first five books, and that's largely about law. It's filled with stories of matriarchs and patriarchs and, you know, going here or there and doing things, but it's, that's mainly its concern. The, have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Okay, don't eat bats. Watch out for the wombat, you know, the cleft hoof, all this, all this kind of stuff. Um, that is... Uh, law, okay? The other section is the prophets. Uh, the ketuvim, is, it's called, the prophets. And the final section is what's called the writings, but it's really like the wisdom writings, books like um, 
Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and categories that are, it's a bit hard to say exactly what they are, but they're really from the wisdom traditions. Wise sayings, mystical sayings, strange sayings, like everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You know, that's in the Bible. Like, who speaks like that besides Nietzsche or something like that, you know? So anyway, there's these three sort of expressions, law, prophets, writings, or wisdom, you could say, law, prophets, and wisdom, really um, is, is an expression of the development of human consciousness. And what Heschel comes along and says, if you only live in law, you end up becoming blind and serving rules and creeds. And what we need is the great critique of the prophets who came along and said, how dare you stand in the temple and offer your little sacrifices and shed the blood of the innocent and the weak and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. That's the major prophetic critique. You have no right to stand up on a Sunday morning, Saturday morning, whatever, I don't know, in the temple. You have no right to stand there and say, dear God, fill in the blank, and then turn around and do acts of, uh, that, are, that, would, that are unjust. That is the major theme of the prophets. So when Heschel was standing there, he wasn't standing there as a hero. He was saying, I'm standing there because I'm embedded inside my own tradition. For me to do otherwise would be to violate the richness and deepness of what Judaism is offering the world. I would violate my own um, religious uh, ideals, you could say. Have I made sense? That's the prophetic consciousness. Let me put it one more way. Um, a religion that can't critique itself will always be immature and narcissistic. Always, 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 always. Self-critical thought is absolutely essential for growth. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think about your own life. At a certain point, you have to say, what the hell am I doing? You know, some self-critique is necessary, but when religion tries to drive that out, it's in real trouble. And the, the miracle of the Hebrew Bible, I know people, they don't tend to, to praise the Old Testament, is that it included self-critique. And then Heschel took that and launched that out again into the modern landscape, inside things like the civil rights movement. And saying, he was saying, how dare you read the Bible and not defend the rights of black America? That's what he was saying. How dare you? Okay. Here's some lines. A religious person is a person who holds God and man in one thought. Again, humanity. Here, humanity. Here. A religious person is a person who holds God and humanity in one thought at one time at all times. Now, ask yourself, according to his definition, am I a religious person? Do I hold, you can expand it, the mystery of existence and humanity in one thought? He says, that's a religious person. Now, think about most religious people that you know. Is that how you would define them? They hold the divine and humanity in one thought at one time at all times. See how he's saying you can't separate the two? He goes on. 
Um, okay, a religious person is a person who holds God and man in one thought at one time at all times, who suffers harm done to others, whose greatest passion is compassion, whose greatest strength is love and defiance of despair. Do you feel how he's calling us, any listener, religious or non-religious, to something deeper here? Morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. You could hear that in Margaret's words this morning, the ways in which our own kids are suffering by no fault of their own from a sick culture or um, fill in the blank. <laughs> just like it's hard to be a parent, you know, and it's just, yeah, they're suffering in the world and even our own kids are suffering. He's saying, well, morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. He's saying, that's what a religious person is. That's what I learned from the prophets. He said, that indifference to evil, indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. That in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. I've used this line before standing up here a few times. Do you recognize it? All in a free society, some are guilty. Guilty, but all are responsible. Now think about, again, our political climate. Is that what people are saying? No. They're saying some are guilty and some are responsible. Or let me put it another way. Those people are guilty and those people are responsible. He's saying, all right, there's a difference between responsibility and guilt. I didn't do certain actions. You didn't do certain actions that in a very concrete way, another person might be guilty of. But he says, in a free society, you're responsible and I'm responsible. It's an elevation of responsibility when it comes to justice. And he's just ringing that bell again and again with his own actions and with his words. Okay, that's a bit on justice. Let's, let's um, end with some thoughts here on wonder. One of my favorite ones. The beginning of all religion is wonder. I've also said that standing up here. The beginning of all religion is wonder. And again, what he means by religion might not be your definition, but a certain way of being in the world. He says the starting place is wonder, not fear, like be afraid God is going to burn you in hell. That's how a lot of people start. He says that's not religion. That's just fear. That's fear of creedal statements. But actually, a child playing on the beach is more religious than most religious people because of the opening to wonder and amazement. Now, maybe you don't want to be religious, and I get what the problem with that word right now in the contemporary world, but I'm telling you, go lay down on the beach at night and look at the stars. And that's what he's saying is the fundamental starting place. Of, of a religious life or of a life oriented toward meaning. Here are a few more. We can never, oh, this, this is fitting since I just mentioned the stars. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn. 
I saw the sun coming up this morning. Imagine if I went out and like, stupid sun, you know? This is idiotic, you know? I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. Coming into alignment, like you think about the Tao. I mean, this is the basic Taoist philosophy, like coming into alignment with the way things are, with the cycles and the seasons and the dawn and, and the stars and the, the zodiac and, ooh, the zodiac. Okay, the stars move around, you know? Coming into alignment with things like that. Um, yeah, you can't mock it. Not really if you open yourself up to it. We cannot sneer at the stars or mock the dawn or scoff at the totality of being. Wonder rather than doubt is the root of all knowledge. Wonder rather than doubt is the root of all knowledge. I th- it's, it's something about what you said, Margaret, that just ke- it, I was thinking about um, Jesus' line. He says, uh, unless you change, you become like children. You can't enter the kingdom. You know, what a funny line. Like, what is he saying? Go back to this. That's what he's saying. Go back to wonder. Go back to awe. Go back to amazement. Go back to uh, a kind of expansion. And you'll see clearly, I think. You'll know how to move forward in the world. When I think about the major problems that we face, like socio-political, economic, and, and environmental catastrophes that we face, I hear something like this, and it seems like impossible, but there's something about it that says, if we can return to a kind of wonder and amazement at being in life itself, we're on the right track. How else? Okay. Um, two more things. Never once in my life did I ask for success or wisdom or power or fame. I asked for wonder and God gave it to me. You know. Let's look at this uh, reading in your bulletin. The search for reason ends at the known. The search for reason ends at the known. On the immense expanse beyond it, only the sense of the ineffable can glide. He's not throwing reason out, saying it just leads us to the doorstep of the ineffable. It alone knows the route to that which is remote from experience and understanding. Neither of them is amphibious. Reason can go beyond the shore, and the sense of the ineffable is out of place where we measure where we weigh. We do not leave the shore of the known in search of adventure or suspense or because of the failure of reason to answer our questions. We sail because our mind is like a fantastic seashell. And when applying, it to, applying our ear to its lips, we hear a perpetual murmur from the waves beyond the shore. Citizens of two realms, we all must sustain a dual allegiance. We sense the ineffable in one realm. We name and exploit reality in another. Like what a summary of what it means to be human, the tension of being human. 
remaining with one, one hand in the realm of the ineffable and the other in the realm of what we know and reason and intelligence. And, Between the two, we set up a system of references, but we can never fill the gap. They are as far and as close to each other as time and calendar, as violin and melody, a life and what lies beyond the last breath. I can feel the kind of poetry and magic in, in his way of writing and his way of evoking something. He's saying it's okay to have dual allegiance in the world, <laughs> to mystery and to reason, to what's known and to the unknown. And they're as close together as violin and melody. I want to end with a poem because... Heschel is a philosopher of religion, um, a kind of social activist, a rabbi, a teacher of the Torah, and he's a, he writes poems in Yiddish. <laughs> and I want to end with um, at least one of his Yiddish poems. I don't know Yiddish. I mean, I can read the Hebrew characters, but I know nothing about, about, about Yiddish. Um, Yiddish is a language that's written in Hebrew characters, but is not Hebrew. Anyway. Um, I wanted to, to read this poem because of the title of my series here, Saints, Mystics, and Misfits, and this is in the mystical realm. Okay? Heschel was so committed to this intuition that to um, see God, one must have humanity in mind at all times, and to see humanity really and all of its brilliance and all of its suffering is to see the face of God. This is... Um, his consciousness, you could say. He has a poem that's related to this. It's called I and You. Transmissions flow from your heart to mine. Trading, twining my pain with yours. Am I not you? Are you not I? My nerves are clustered with yours. Your dreams have met mine. Are we not one in the bodies of millions? I often glimpse myself in everyone's form, hear my own speech, a distant, quiet voice in people's weeping as if under millions of masks my face would lie hidden. I live in me and in you. Through your lips goes a word from me to me. <laughs> from your eyes drips a tear, its source in me. When a need pains you, alarm me. When you miss a human being, tear open my, uh, excuse me, when you miss a human being, tear open my door. You live in yourself, you live in me. Now, it's a bit of a, a strange and mystical poem, and he's blurring the lines between the I and the you, 
between the I and the greater I, meaning the divine. He's saying the experience of suffering and of beauty and of joy that I feel is the same that you feel and is the same as what the divine feels. It is one field is what he's trying to describe. Now, we don't need to necessarily have a metaphysical conversation about, is he right? (laughs) But we can at least ask, what does it evoke? What does it evoke? What does it evoke? When you see other human beings, what do you see? When you see the tears of other human beings, what is it that you're experiencing? When you see the suffering of other human beings, is it yours? When you see the longings and the hopes and the wonderings and even the misguided dead ends <laughs> that human beings go down, how is that also yours? That's the kind of um, evocative ter- terrain I think Heschel is trying to wander in. Okay, one final one and then I'm done. This is called God's Tears, and we'll leave it at that. Okay, God's Tears. God's tears lie on the cheeks of shamed, weak people. God's tears lie on the cheeks of shamed, weak people. Let me wipe away his lament. He in whose veins there whirls a quiet shudder before God. Let him kiss the nails of a pauper. To the worm crushed underfoot, God calls out, my holy martyr. The sins of the poor are more beautiful than the good deeds of the rich. Thanks for listening.